I'm, I'm also trying something else new today. I'm, I'm understanding this. Do you, listen to this. Can you hear this? Listen. It's going down. It's going down, 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 down. Back up. Back. Back up to meet me here. Lovely. Hello, Danny. Hello, Alex. Exciting. Episode two. Episode two. You know what episode two means? What does that mean? Follow up. Or, as most of the podcasts I listen to call it, most of the content. I thought you were going to call it The Empire Strikes Back or, um, uh, what was it called? Revenge of the, uh, Revenge of the Sequel? No. Re- Revenge of the Sequel. That would be episode three, surely. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. So, let's hear all about, uh, how triumphant your driving test was. My driving test. Now, you, you actually haven't heard it. We haven't spoken, really, very much since last time. Uh, you may have got the impression from last time that I was quite unprepared for this test, having only driven for a couple of hours in the last 15 years or, or whatever it was that I said. And you may have thought even that if I was to pass the test with such low preparation, it would be a sort of indictment of the whole American driving system. <laughs> Oh, testing system. You know, I do hear good things about the American driving testing system, so I'm looking forward to hearing how, the, how this went. Well, <laughs> if that's what you thought, then I have good news for you. What's that? Because I failed my driving test. Nice! <laughs> nice! <laughs> so, Californian roads are safe still <laughs> Wow! <laughs> without so, my negative presence. Hold on, Wait, you, you're going to have to... You, what, what, what happened? This is shocking. There you go. So I, I wanted to get your real reaction, so that's why I didn't tell you. But um, yeah, so I I failed almost instantly, in fact, <laughs> straight out of the gate. Um, but did you forget to put your seatbelt on or, or did you like insult, no, insult no. the uh, instructor or I something? Got all or? That. I got all that. I got all my indicators in the right place. My God, that, that is a shocking tie. You would actually consider wearing a tie like that to my driving test and instant, <laughs> instant fail or what happened? No. So uh, the center where I was, I, I mean, I'd done the route a couple of times, so I kind of knew all this. Um, should have been prepared, but straight out of the gate, you always turn left, and then there's a, a junction, and they either take you straight forward, or you turn left, or you turn right, and that depends from time to time. If you go straight forward, then there's a bridge, okay, and it's quite a tight bridge, and it's on a corner. Right. There's a stop sign on both ends, and there's a little pedestrian walkway along the side. Amazing. You have this incredibly well-memorized Yes, well, imagine that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I stopped at the stop sign, but it happened that, and I had done this a couple of times in the practice uh, leading up to, in fact, immediately for an hour before the test, I did a little practice run. Um, but in this case, it just so happened that as I stopped, there was a car coming in on the other end and, and they stopped as well. And there was a pedestrian walking their dog coming in on the right. Right. And this combination of things, this car coming in on the other side, this very tight bridge and this pedestrian sort of just crossing over in line with the car in opposite directions at the point where I was supposed to go meant that I hesitated too long. So I should have, after having stopped and, you know, checked out what was going on, I should have continued slowly Mm. across the bridge. Uh, and I'm sure I would have eventually, 
but <laughs> I, <laughs> I uh, didn't. Uh, I stopped for too long. Oh, no. And the examiner judged that that was sort of making the other people on the road uncomfortable because they didn't know what I was going to be doing because I was hesitating for too long. Oh, no. So, uh, so they led me straight. I had thought that that would be... I could tell that, obviously, it was bad, and I knew straight away, oh, I should have just gone more quickly and, and shown a bit more confidence there. But I had thought that would be a one-strike kind of thing, mm. and I would have sort of two more opportunities to sort of make silly mistakes like that before I failed. But no, she led me straight back to the DMV, and that was that. Oh, so I'm sorry. What so a, it's what, a bit frustrating. What a shame. So hold on, what 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 happens? Do you have a chance to retry the test? Yes, uh, I. So I've booked another test for the end of June. Oh, okay. So I've got a chance. I'm going to take a couple more lessons, get a bit more practice. Right. I think it is. So it is a little bit frustrating because it feels relatively minor, and I didn't do anything like super dangerous. Right. Uh, I was, you know, if anything, I was too cautious. That was the problem. Right. But confidence is important in driving and not sending mixed signals to other drivers is important well that's true and i think you know the judgment that i am still not very confident is a fair one so i don't you know i don't think it's unfair mm. uh, and i think taking a couple more lessons and, and taking another test is a reasonable thing. I mean, I was originally planning on taking six lessons before taking the test anyway. Right. I only took the test after two lessons because the, you know, the instructor thought that I was already good enough. But so I've actually ended up more or less where I started. So, <laughs> well, I'm not too worried. Well, what, uh, it's a bit of a shame though. My, my sympathies, you know, I think, uh, uh, we can put it down, I guess, to, I mean, it's driving tests really, you know, if they're stringent and if they're strict about it, that's for the better of everybody. Yep. Uh, however, that's that's you know that's really disappointing for you. I'm I'm uh, I'm 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 just speechless. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Danny. I think if um I think everybody uh, who's listening out there, we should all uh, send Danny a few tweets of support for his next driving test. And uh, yeah, the yeah, that, what, what can I say? That that's just that's just that's just <laughs> just shocking. It's fine. I will. I will get a bit more practice and have another go and be road ready within the month, I am sure. Uh, perhaps you might be road ready before your fast mail integration is completed. Uh, no, well, so I have good news for you there. I took your advice after the last episode right. and I contacted their support center. Okay. And they were very quick to get back to me and they said, uh, nope, there is no process going on. Uh, if you check this button and do this thing, you can restart it and it won't, it will just start from where it left off. It won't have to sit there redoing everything okay. it's already done. So I followed their instructions and I set it all up. And within a day, I think it was within a few hours, actually, uh, it had completed and I got the completion mail. So everything had migrated. So great. So what happened? It, it sort of, um, what happened? It, it paused? Or Some, I, I don't know exactly what went wrong mm. uh so i think something went wrong with the process it was obviously a very long process uh to to transfer over four gigabytes of mail right and something must have gone wrong along the way whether it was you know on fast mail's end that their script fell over or whether it was on google's end that they just stopped serving you know they thought enough is enough and stopped serving it. i'm not sure but whatever it was 
just triggering a, a restart was enough to fix it. So right. I'm now fully migrated and the uh, the support is very quick and easy and painless. So mm. should have done it straight away. So that one megabyte a day I was seeing sort of ticking up, that was just new mails coming in. Oh, okay. Well. Spe- yeah, actually speaking of fast mail also, the, the one other thing we, you mentioned last episode, which I just wanted to clarify quickly. Yeah. Because you mentioned the uh, the limits that it had when you first joined. Yeah. And I thought I'd better just double check that because, you know, I don't, I don't want to find that I'm suddenly going to be trying to send an email and it doesn't send or anything. Right. So I just thought I'd double check and also to clarify. Uh, and there is a page which I'll put in the show notes on their limits with all their different account types. Right. But it, I don't think it will be a problem because on the uh, standard plan, which is what I'm on, uh, it is 4,000 messages received per day. Okay. Uh, or... Or 1,000 messages received. I'm not sure what these two... Oh, 1,000 megabytes or 4,000 messages. Right. And uh, 4,000 messages sent. And it's the same for both sending and receiving. Right. So I don't think I'm ever going to be getting anywhere near those limits. So it's basically a non-issue. Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. That probably prevents um, people using Fastmail as a spam service, right? For actually sending out massive amounts of emails. Right. That's interesting. So they actually studio limited like that. Well, they do. I think it. I actually think it's fairly common for email services to have some sort of limit, but they tend to be very high limits, like this. Did I just did I just say they sue deal limited like that? I think I did, didn't I? Did you? I don't know. We'll have to <laughs> listen. We'll have to listen back. <laughs> I, I sue deal limited. That's amazing. If you, if you did, I didn't notice, which is also interesting in its own way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, that's a little bit of a good news and a little bit of bad news for you there this week, Danny. I'm. Uh, uh, I have to say, I'm, I am very proud of you for failing that test. I mean, you know, if you can... <laughs> I try my best. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do poorly, you may also just flat out fail right at the start of the test, really. I mean... Well, I don't want to waste anybody's time. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, zero overkill, really. Right. I mean, uh, it reminds me of um, a, uh, a, fr- a friend of... Uh, a friend of a friend who used to be so happy in university when he would when he would get like fifty two percent, like two percent over the pass mark for his grade, right, right, and he'd be so happy because he'd say, "Look, zero overkill." He did the exact amount of preparation for that exam and no more. That's right, right. It's exactly what was necessary. <laughs> I passed, and you know that's just zero overkill. So uh, mm. if you're gonna if you're gonna fail a driving test, do it in style, everybody. Do it the way that Danny does it. You know, straight out of the gates, failed. Okay, back we go. You're, you're, I, it's, I mean, it's good she took you back. I mean, I guess uh, she could have taken you around the whole course and given you a sense of hope and then you get back and said, sorry, you, you messed up at the first corner. That would have been annoying. But they do, they are, there's a, a section on the form for insta-fail type things and they do just take you back for those because it's, you know, obviously it's a waste of everybody's time. And potentially, I mean, if you failing instantly for something presumably it's because you're considered to be dangerous on the road right. so the less time you spend on the road the better right right yeah actually um just uh, before we move on to some new topics that was uh, it reminded me of one thing that you often see in japan you see many cases of people breaking road rules in order to be kind to other drivers <laughs> for example okay so in japan obviously we're driving on the uh, the correct side of the road that is the left side of the road that's correct and um um uh, what you may get is you'll get cases where, so if you're on the left side of the road, turning right means you need to turn across oncoming traffic. Right. So you'll get you'll get cases um, where this may be a little bit difficult for our American and European listeners to envisage, but you'll get cases where people on the other side of the road will wait for you so that you can turn across the incoming traffic. 
people on the other side, people ahead of you, you mean? Uh, no, people on people basically, normally you should give way to oncoming traffic when you're turning through it. Right. I'm, try, I'm trying to do this without making reference to left and right, which is quite challenging. So if you uh, need to turn through oncoming traffic, obviously they have the right of way, so you need to wait. There will be many cases in Japan where the person who's oncoming will see that you're trying to turn across the oncoming traffic. So they will stop in the middle of the road and hold up all of the oncoming traffic behind them so that you can go first. So that happens quite frequently. And it's it's a little bit disconcerting because when you are the person who's turning across the oncoming traffic, it, it creates quite a dangerous situation because what about if like somebody on a scooter or on a bike decided to go around this, this, the, the oncoming traffic that had stopped, you'd, you'd clip them straight on right right there. Uh, so often it's a little bit sort of, you know, kindness to other drivers is extremely important. Good courtesy is, uh, uh, vital for a safe, you know, a safe traffic system. However, road rules exist so that everybody is understanding what everybody else is going to do. So, you know, when that kind of situation and, and confidence is important as well as kindness. Exactly. And so when that kind of situation happens, it actually is extremely dangerous and that happens quite frequently in Japan. So, Japanese drivers, you're great. You're very kind. Thank you very much. But let's all stick to the rules together, shall we? Right. So there's a public service message for all of Japan. Well, our many, many Japanese listeners. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of Japan, another beautiful segue. You know, we uh, we pride ourselves on our excellent quality segues. Here. You are a pro at those. I'm I'm a I'm a segwayist. Uh, now, speaking of Japan, what are, what are we talking about next? <laughs> a bit from it. That is <laughs> the Japanese, the premier Japanese indie games festival, which just happened last last weekend, the weekend before. That's correct. So, uh, just a little bit of context there. There are, let's see, there are there are a number of different Japanese game events. The largest of which is, of course, Tokyo Game Show, and Tokyo Game Show is a consumer focused event, uh, consumer and hobbyist and cosplay cosplayer focused event um and consequently tokyo game show is huge and there's massive budget and big booths and you know like huge rigs with lights from the ceiling and massive sound systems and it's just all very big and a lot of money and a lot of uh a lot of glamour and glitz and um yeah that is tokyo game show it is put, put quite simply it is like the e3 of japan that's correct yeah it's basically Basically, it's it's where all the money goes, and it's the big sort of show. Basically, um, if you are an enthusiastic gamer and you want to try titles before they are going to be released, or you want to catch up on the latest from your favorite game developers or publishers, then Tokyo Game Show is the place to do that. Right, and that's on every September. In in not actually in Tokyo, is it? It's in Chiba. Uh, yeah, that's right. But never never mind that. Well, <laughs> it's all basically one massive sprawling metropolis. But um, five years back a certain group of individuals decided that what Japan needs right now is more support for the smaller game developers. You know, basically the, the uh, indie developers, um, the, uh, you know, the, the two person, one person sort of um, pop up uh, little uh, outfits where people just, you know, get together and make a game and want to show it out to the public. Uh, and thus was born an event in Kyoto of all places called Bitsummit. And Bit Summit has been going for five years, and I'm proud to say that I have not missed one of them. This was the first one that I've missed. Yes. Sad. Sad. I have been to everyone, but since I no longer live in Kansai, I could not make it to this one. There were, you know, your presence was sorely missed, Denny. They should name an award after me. 
the, the Danny Wright Award. That's right. The, the, <laughs> the Danny Danny Wright Absent Friends Award. Yeah, Danny was Danny's not here anymore. Award. That's a nice one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, Bit Summit. The main difference is that Bit Summit. The nice thing about it is that it maintains the charm of the first one. The first one, if you were lucky enough to attend, you would know that it was it was a developer only event. And you had developers and you had some sponsors, uh, middleware sponsors and um, uh, other sort of uh, game industry support vendor sponsors. And it was focused only on developers. And it was a tiny little community hall with a stage and a broken air conditioning system. And, you and know, it was all really small. Do you know what it reminded me of? To, just to go on a tangent every time you try and say anything. Do you know what it reminded me of? Was Did you go to any sort of Amiga or it would have been the Spectrum for me, but like microcomputer sort of convention, conventions almost overstating it. But, you know, meetups in your local town where people would bring their Amigas and just play about on them and show each other the things they'd made or whatever. Did you ever go to any of those sorts of things? I would have loved it if we had some of those in Adelaide where I grew up. Adelaide, everybody, it was very much a Commodore Amiga or Commodore 64 sort of um, uh, a culture. We didn't have many of the consoles, but uh, uh, sadly I was either too young or we just didn't know about where these sort of meetups were. So no, I didn't. Right. I went to, I went to some when I was very young, uh, not Amiga ones, but I went to some that had sort of, old they were already old by that point they were already sort of retro culture microcomputers and i also went to some general computer fairs which would have bits of pc hardware and software and things that you could trade and and buy and stuff and it was a really similar sort of atmosphere like everyone was just a hobbyist together right at that first bit summit i thought yeah, that's the that's the that was the nice thing about it. You know, it was shoulder to shoulder, everyone was kind of sweaty, and you're like peering over people's shoulders to see games, and there was a lot of uh, sort of awkward giggling, and uh, <laughs> um, uh, it, it was really nice. Just I, I guess the, the the word the word to describe it is unpretentious, and um, right. That's that's been the great consistent thing about Bit Summit through the years, and we just had the fifth one is that it remains um, unpretentious, and it's just sort of uh, a simple congregation of people. Now it's open to the public. And that's been a great thing because Japanese gamers are fantastic. You know, they're, they're just so enthusiastic and open-minded and mm. curious. And, um, uh, you know, they you really feel the sense that they are so happy to meet you and they're so happy to try your game and lots of smiles. They're almost and, surprised that you're interested in playing it as well. Like, they're, they're very modest. Yeah, and the, the nice thing is, is there's such little cynicism in uh, in the Japanese gamer consumer market. You know, they're very, mm. very curious and very open-minded and um, uh, it, there's not, not much of a case of, you know, oh, this is just a copy of that game or oh, okay, you just made this with Unity Store assets, didn't you? Or, you know, it's nothing like that. It's, right, right, it's right. just um, people are, are just there to play good games and that that consumer character plus the unpretentious nature of the event creates this great atmosphere of just nice games nice people good fun um there's been uh over the five years the you know bit summit has uh you know you can't say that it hasn't had its fair share of growing pains um but now you really feel that the last year and this year they've definitely hit a rhythm of it just feeling like this great little sort of small scale, actually large, but it feels very small kind of event. Um, so this time, uh, the company that I work for, uh, we were showing our latest title and uh, we were extremely honored to win an award. Uh, this would be the, I think between us, the fourth award that we've won, I think at this event. Oh, very good. Yeah, I forgot because 
Vito Backroom has got the Vermilion Gate a few years ago, and then this is the second, but you also yeah, when got the, some... That's right. So the previous game company that I was with called Winning Blimp, uh, uh, we won the Audio Design... Uh, what No, Excellence in Audio Award uh, three years ago, which is how I hooked up with Vito in the first place. But um, yeah, so we this time we were extremely honored to receive the Famitsu Media Highlight Award. Now this award, of all of the awards that you could win... Second, perhaps, to the Vermilion Gate, which is sort of like the grand mega prize. Uh, the, the Famitsu Media Highlight Award is, is extremely, extremely prestigious, just in, at least in our minds, because Famitsu, as you know, is the largest, most reputable, longest-running game industry publication in Japan. All right. So it's kind of like you're a journalist and you win, like, you know, I don't know what, the, the, the Times Award for Good Journalism. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not really sure what the longest-running publication is in the West, but... Uh, yeah, it, it was a fantastic event. And as I said, just a whole bunch of great people. And what's also nice is that um, Bid Summit doesn't just feature great games from smaller and medium-sized Japanese game companies. Mm. Uh, it, also it also openly receives entries from around Asia and, you know, people who uh, have the means to come out from, you know, uh, America and Europe as well. You, you can um, Yeah, people fly in from all over, don't they? Especially over the years, it's that side of things has increased yeah. and it's at first it was uh like that i remember in the early days of bit summit they were talking about trying to give more exposure to uh, small and indie developers in japan and that's still very much a big part of of what it's about but it's it's also become like a cross-pollination of ideas where people can come from america and europe and meet with japanese developers and talk with them and show them their games and look at you know look at the japanese games and it's much more it definitely goes both ways these days i think yeah that's exactly right and it, it's only it's all the better for it because you know the these um uh smaller hobbyist japanese groups and also smaller japanese companies um having the ability for them to have like an open floor of interesting stimulating small-scale ideas and medium and large-scale ideas too of course from around asia and around you know in in rare cases also from around europe and from around america as well um, it, it, it only serves to inspire the Japanese uh, game development community here uh, and to sort of um, make them feel involved, I guess, because that's one thing that uh, has been a little bit of an issue. Perhaps issue is not the right word. I guess a little characteristic of the Japanese independent game development scene is that up until, basically up until Bitsummit, at least as far as I know, it's been fairly insular. You know, you you get like the Komiket Dojin world of, of fan art and fan game copies where people actually create identical copies of games just with their own um just like fan art basically but in the game development sense but those and even even when they come up with original games i think in the kind of dodging community there's been a reluctance to share those with anybody outside of that community and certainly to sell them which is just not even on their radar exactly right i mean it's basically it's fan art and just like when you're drawing fan art for yourself you know if you're drawing fan art of say for example uh i don't know let's say you do your own fan art of your favorite marvel comic character or whatever you know are you going to go and take that to a show and show it off well probably not i mean you know right. if, uh, <laughs> it's probably something that you're happy to show your friends and other friends who are also doing fan art um where it's it's quite safe and you know you, you get uh, a predictable response but it's not something that you seek to, to to put out there and especially not for money and that has meant that um the the western idea of indie game development 
uh, has uh, just developed in a very different way here. And I wouldn't say it's been slow to develop, and I think it just the, the objective has been somewhat different. But BitSummit being free to, free to exhibit, which is amazing, Mm. Um, it's, they do that intentionally, uh, so that, you know, um, just to encourage people to, to come out and to, uh, just give it a try, you know, you set up a table, get a little poster set up and sit there with your game and have some people come and play it. And, uh, I think, yeah. And they got a lot of like very young people and students showing some super interesting games. I remember three years ago, the, the year that we met VR, that was the first bit summit where VR was like a huge thing and everyone was bringing in Oculus Rifts and showing their demos uh, for, for the Oculus Rift and stuff. Right. And there was some really sort of interesting, weird, not quite games, but super interesting. Like there was one weird one. I can vaguely remember it. That was like where you were a horse head or something. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I don't remember that. So it's like, uh, I think it attached a horse head to VR goggles. That was bizarre, but I, I'll have to look that up and see if I can put it in the show notes or something. But yeah, just really wild ideas. And it was, yeah, it was great. Yeah, that's um, that's always been the good thing about it. Because it, unlike Tokyo Game Show, where it's all about budget and it's about return and it's about marketing and exposure, in this case, uh, you know, uh, it, this sounds like a marketing pitch in itself, but it, it's it's more about the games, you know, really. I mean, there is there is the marketing and exposure and stuff as well, but that is... That's almost like a side effect. Exactly. That's like, especially in the, in the awards help with that. Yeah. Like they're, they're quite good for that, I think. Yeah. But when you're actually there, most of the time, and I've helped you guys with your, you know, when you've been exhibiting in the past. So I, I know what it's like. Most of the time you are intensely focused on showing your game to people and helping them get set up and explaining it to them. And then whenever you get a break, you spend that whole time running around all the other stalls trying to see as much as you can exactly in the time that you've got yeah that's right uh it's anyway this time it was um uh, interestingly not so much on the vr side uh, i think maybe that's a comment on uh you know the direction that the game industry is heading right now but uh um a few really nice uh, contributions from a few countries around uh southeast asia which is great to see it's, it's excellent to see um you know really good quality games coming out of cities where you, you generally don't associate with you know indie game development mm. there was a um uh, an excellent game by uh, called stifled by a group called uh, i think they were called Gattai games uh mm-hmm. and they're they're from singapore and that was great you know all right caught up with the guy caught up with the um one of their developers who was at the show showing off the game that specific game was an echolocation game where it's a, it's a psvr game where you you trigger sound uh, and you, it visualizes sound sources so that you can detect where objects are in your environment. So it's, it's echolocation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, very interesting and, and a great bunch of guys. And yeah, just great to see, um, you know, I'd imagine if you're a developer in Singapore, uh, your options in Singapore for broader exposure on the international scale for, for showing your game. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there may not be this kind of event in Singapore, at least not on this scale. So it's great to see guys uh, uh, coming up and um, flying the flag for their country and just sort of uh, showing that, yep, we're making good stuff down here too. Because I think the game industry you often associate with, you know, obviously Seattle and obviously California, you know, Los Angeles and San Francisco. And then, of course, uh, uh, the European centers for game development, London, uh, obviously the UK, Scotland, London, 
and then of course Europe, Stockholm, and, and the various Berlin and the various places where you associate with game development. But these smaller smaller cities, very often, you you, don't, you just don't really hear much of them. So it's great to see what they're doing. All right. Great. Yeah. Well, I'll have to check that out and put a link in the show notes. And I will also put a link to Paper Garden, which is Vito Backroom's game that won the Famitsu Media Highlight Award. Well done. Well done, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, that was, uh, uh, I forgot to mention that, didn't I? Yes, the game is called Paper Garden and uh, it's by Vitae Backroom. And it's a game about throwing paper planes and the inherent joy therein. It looks, it looks great in the video as well. So all of that will be in the show notes. I have something else exciting to share with you, Danny. Okay, do tell, because you've, you've written it here so I can see it. Right. But so I don't know what it means. Right. Okay. So um, uh, the topic is, it's called Kibasen, which basically means uh, riding horse battle. Right. Now, this is... Okay. So I'm, I'm sort of trying... I'm, I'm biting my lip to restrain my enthusiasm here for this because I have been in Japan for a long time and without a doubt, unquestionably... This is the most amazing thing I have seen. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to convey the amazingness of this. But if it sounds really boring, that's only because of my description, not because of how amazing it is or isn't. So uh, at primary school, so in Japan, you have basically well, primary school or elementary school, if you like, which goes for six years, followed by junior high school, then high school. Uh, so in elementary school, primary school, uh, you have sports days like anywhere else in the world. And one of the events at the sports day, the events generally are pretty unusual from a Western uh, standpoint. I mean, I remember in Australia, uh, sports days generally tended to have sort of track and field style events, like 100 meter dash or relay or... Right, traditional athletic events. Yeah, like long jump or, you know, things like that. In Japan, they're all a bit more unusual. You get sort of uh, ones where all the kids have to throw these little kind of colored bean bags into a basket and then you count how many, like a basket that's high above their heads and they have to count how many, who gets the more bean bags and they've got the, the tug of war actually with long beams of, of straw, like hardened straw instead of ropes, which mm. is kind of interesting. And uh, um, they've got the other kinds of things like, you know, you, you've got to tie your legs together with a partner and run in synchronization and things like that. Now, last year was the first time when my son was in year one. This is the first time I experienced Kibasen. And just last weekend, we had um, his year two sports day, and this was the second time I experienced. So let me tell you what it is. Kibasen involves only year five and year six students. So it's just the big kids. Which is how old? That is about 12 and 13, I guess, or 11 to 13. 12 and 13, 11, 11 to 13, okay. Yeah, so that's just the big kids. Now, Kibasen, as the name describes, what it is, is basically dueling horses made up of primary school kids. The way it works, listen carefully now, this is going to be hard to describe just with, just vocally, uh, just orally, but here we go. Imagine you have four people standing in a square shape, all facing forward, right? Four people standing in a square shape. So one is in front of the other and two are side by side and in the middle of the... Uh, no, okay. So two in front, two behind, basically. Oh, two in front, two behind. Yeah. Oh, okay. And all yeah. facing forward. Now, okay. the two, pe- two kids at the back have their inside arms on the shoulders of the two kids in front. Okay, yeah. Inside arm only. So that creates kind of, if you look at it from the top, it's like an H shape sideways. Yeah. Now, yeah, okay, yeah. Now, you have a fifth kid who sits on top of those arms in the middle. Oh, wow. Okay. And the two kids... Facing forward. Facing forward. 
And the two kids at the back with their outside arms, they're holding the feet of the kid in the middle. Oh, wow. So he's, so he's astride the middle arms and his feet are sticking out to the side and the uh, outside arms of the two back kids are the stirrups of the horse. Exactly right. Exactly right. Right. Okay, that is a horse. Now, the idea of kibasen is that the, the rider who's in the middle wears either a red hat or a white hat. And you, okay. have, you have uh, red horses versus white horses. So the idea is that as the horses charge each other, the goal is for the rider to snatch the hat off the opponent. Ah, is it always one on one, or is it like a, a bat? Is it more like a joust or a battle? Okay, now this is where it gets amazing. So okay, that is <laughs> I've seen three versions of it, but it's mm-hmm. basically the entire year. So a year in Japan, depending on the size of the school, will be, you know, maybe sort of uh, three classes of 30 kids. So about 90 or 100 kids. 90 people. Wow. So so let's say 100 people, and that's divided by five, would be 20 horses. Right. So you have basically 20 horses. Which 10 white and 10 red. Exactly. Now, this is (laughs) utterly amazing. Now, basically, I've seen three variations of it. Uh, the one that impressed me the most, which I'll talk about first, I saw last year at the school that we were at. The way it works is you have 10 horses. One horse, the rider wears a special colored singlet, and he or she is the general. Oh. And the general is at the back with all of the horses surrounding him or her, dishing out commands, strategic commands, to protect him or herself from the other, uh, the other, the other army, basically. Is it the person sitting astride the horse that is considered the general or the whole, all five? It's always the, the rider. The rider does everything. Basically, the rider, the rider, does everything, the rider tells the, the four kids underneath him or her where to go. Uh, so it's basically all on the rider. <laughs> so now if you imagine this when I saw it last year, the first time I'd seen this, suddenly they all started climbing on top of each other. And I said to my wife, what is this? What is this? And she said, oh, this is just keep us in. <laughs> this is amazing. And it's like this, this one guy at the back. And I can see the, the, the teacher will blow a whistle and they've got referees around the, around the ground who are holding red flags and white flags in opposing arms. To, so when there is a duel, the, the referee will run up and then hold up the flag to signify who got the hat first, which color it, it Oh, to. I see. If both hats end up being taken, the referee is checking which one came first. Exactly. And then... When you lose your hat, are you right. out of the game? Exactly. When you lose your hat, you have to dismount and those five kids leave the, leave the ground. Right. So... Okay. When I saw it last year, that the first thing that happened is I said, look at that, they're in formation. Like they've got the general at the back and he's, he's commanded, he's commanded the, the horses to be like in a pincer shape. Right, like a real battle. <laughs> it's like a real battle and they're charging ahead and you can see that like the outlying horses will do battle and so, some of them will fall as, the, as hats are being taken. And, um, uh, you know, the, the goal in that particular case is to get the general's hat. So it comes down to that the general is basically sort of hiding behind the the uh, the soldiers in front, right, uh, and and commanding them to 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 flank him or to to be to take the rear or to you know to come around from behind. <laughs> it was so incredible, and the, this is like it's like twelve and thirteen year old kids doing this. And bear in mind that when they do, when they lock up, mm. the kids. What happens, of course, if the the kids lock hands because they're trying to grab each other's hats right so they lock hands and that you can see their hands sort of kind of uh, like a strength contest sort of um they're both trying to sort or the of, front kids the front kids of both horses no 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 the, the, the horses don't do anything they just do follow the the lead of the rider 
It's all the rider. Okay, but the, the, the front kids of the horses have got their hands free. Are they allowed to do anything with those hands or do they, are they only allowed to move around? They're only allowed to move around. Okay. So the, the people who are the horses don't do anything except just follow the command of the rider. Okay. And uh, they lock up hands and they'll be sort of like dueling with their hands for a while. And then all of a sudden somebody will get a hand free and snatch the head off. And the referee will lift up the flag and everybody cheers and the kids dismantle and leave the pitch. And oh my God, it was just so, so incredible. And the, the, the general at the back was calling out, you know, around here, around here, and like, watch out over that side. And they got this sort of group of two that he had um, uh, commanded to come around from behind the other army. So they were coming in from the back <laughs> and then the, gen the general on the other side noticed that they were going around the side. So he called across, you know, horses to go and defend on the left side because the, there's coming in from the back and it, I, it was it's honestly the most amazing sort of spectator sport. I've ever seen. And when, when it was all over last year, mm. I was just like frothing at the mouth. This is amazing. And everybody around me is <laughs> just going, what? It's just keep us in. You know, everybody does it. <laughs> You've never seen this before. Yeah, it is. We, we, this is what you do in primary school. And it's like, how can I have lived in this country for so long? And nobody's ever told me about this. <laughs> and, and I mean, this is, this is, you don't hear about it. It's not like what you consider traditional Japanese. I suppose it's just a normal, I mean, we don't tell newcomers to our countries, our respective countries, very often what we did in sports day when we were 10. So I suppose <laughs> it, it was, doesn't occur to people to mention. It was just utterly amazing. So last weekend uh, was a different school and they again had Kibasen. And when I found out it was the sports day, I was like, yes, yes, I'm there. <laughs> and like the, the, you're, getting, you're getting ready to place your bets. And my, <laughs> uh, yeah, my wife was there with my daughter and my son, of course, he's in year two now. He, he was the, the year two student. They just watch and they cheer on their, either the red team or the, the white team. And, um, uh, I had to say, sorry, I'm just going to move over there by myself to get a better vantage point to take a video of this because <laughs> this is the most precious thing in Japan ever. So the the rules were a little different in this case. They had um, the the first one was all kids. There was no general. So it was basically like a free-for-all. There was some degree of strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, some kids were sort of obviously more um, – Leadership inclined kids were, you know, uh, uh, dishing up not so much commands, but basically saying, you know, get over there, get over there, or watch out, watch out over there. Right, right. So is that last man standing in, in that sense? Exactly, exactly. So the, the thing that was different, the third variety, uh, which I hadn't seen last year, was this one also had a one on one. Oh, okay. And that was exhilarating because basically, in that case, you have there were five horses lined up, ready to do battle. Uh, and you have the two front horses go against each other. And if you win, you stay in. And if you lose, you dismount and leave. So basically, that is exactly like last last horse standing, essentially. Oh, I see. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, the, wow. Yeah, they had um, there was this girls team that were just incredible. They had this, in this one-on-one -on -one version, there are no, there's another tactic you can use. You can actually push the other horse forward or backwards, so to speak, like just push at them. So the, the the riders will be will be dueling with their arms, and the the horse people underneath will just be constantly marching forward. So mm. depending on who, so they're not allowed to use their arms; they're just marching into each other. Exactly. So like with their chests. Exactly. So depending on who is larger and who is taller, because of course when you stand up when you stand up on the stirrups of the two people's uh, hands at the back, uh, depending on your actual height, you can be towering over the other horse. Right, uh, right, and that gives yeah. you a height advantage over them. So that's what happened. There was like this uh, one team of girls with this really tall rider in the middle, 
and and she was just towering over the other other horses and they would just march forward and push them back over the boundary of the game area and they they that would be counted as a win for the red team oh i see so there's a game area as well if they if they fall out of the game area then it's equivalent to losing their hat right they're out that was um uh yeah so I, actually there was a guy a dad a father standing next to me he said this isn't keep us in this is sumo <laughs> right yeah yeah that's what it sounds like it's, essentially is but uh Yes, so um, uh, absolutely incredible. What is incredible about it is just the fact that, A, it's so fantastic to see this kind of um, uh, very traditional, I mean, it, it, you know, the, this kind of horse battle. Um, obviously, you know, the feudal Japan, they've been doing that for a long time. And it's sort of very, it's very quaint to, to see it embodied in this sort of modern, modern form and done with, you know, uh, you know 11 to 13-year-olds. Um, and the kids really get into it and they, they love it. And I'm sure it, the, the other thing is it's actually quite dangerous because, you know, when a kid is towering over you trying to grab your hat and you lose the, uh, you lose balance, you fall onto the ground. And right. I mean, it sounds super dangerous, especially when you've got these two horses charging into each other as well. It sounds like all 10 of you are just going to collapse into a pile. So you see at the end of the event, you, you'll see like kids like limping off and kids, you know, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, walking off the pitch with holding their elbows and stuff like that. And, you know, there's a little little bit of damage, I guess, but uh, everybody's smiling. And, and of course, the, the, the mums and the dads love watching it. And it's extremely exciting. It happens really fast. You know, the you watch some kids um, uh, who have uh, the ability to like really snatch really quickly to get the hats off the opponent's heads, and um, it's just uh, what can I say? You will probably not find Kibasen anywhere on the internet. Maybe maybe you could probably find it on the on on YouTube. But it's funny that in in Japan, you know, you you get Japanese pro leagues for everything. You know, Japanese people love sport and they love trying different sports from all around the world, mm. even even cricket. Uh, but I'm just shocked that there is no like professional adult league of Kibasen because <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's because like as you get older, you're just too heavy to, to, to carry on the arms of people perhaps. It sounds like the sort of thing that they might do on like variety shows and things like that rather than as a proper sport. I mean, it would, it would, I mean, it's just so, so, so thrilling to watch. And uh, uh, yeah, so this is the second time I've seen it. So if you ever have the opportunity to come to Japan and you happen to have a primary school child and that child happens to be going to a school, do not miss the sports day. <laughs> and it's the Kibasen is, is traditionally the last event. It's, it's kind of like the Oh, well, yeah, it sounds like it would have to be because you'd just all be injured by the end <laughs> of it, so you wouldn't be able to do any other stuff. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, just just fantastic. So, uh, yes, that was what I was... Uh, I, I'd just been dying to share this with somebody because, you know, no Japanese person around me thinks twice about Kibasen. It's just like, it's like, it's like somebody gushing to you about how exciting a 100-meter dash is. Well, yeah, I, I guess it's exciting, but, yeah, yeah we all do it, so... Yeah. Anyway, it's funny. We're going to finish this, and uh, my wife's going to ask me what we did our podcast about this week, and I'll say Kibasen, and she'll she'll probably think we're idiots. But no change there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, on that note, we uh, we received uh, a few comments from uh, uh, one or two of our enthusiastic listeners for episode one that we ended our previous ep episode too abruptly. So I guess we're going to. Yeah, it was quite abrupt. 